Hello, and welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard, alongside none other than John Tesh. John, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm just uh, I'm catching up on a lot of your uh, your podcast now, so I feel like uh, it's it, you know. I, I now don't listen to music when I'm working out. I listen to the podcast. Do you really? I do. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I have I have a, a boxing bell thing that that you know, like about every minute twenty it dings. I have to do another exercise. Um, but it's you know the music thing is like okay everybody's listening to music, but but uh, I I I actually like listening to books on tape is a little slow for me, but uh-huh. the, the, your interviews are great. Thank so, you very much. Yeah, yeah. First of all, uh, I I actually like podcasts and books when I'm running. Uh, but when I'm lifting, I need the I need the extra energy for the music. But yes, uh, this is a great place for you to get sort of the cliff's notes on some of these books that these authors have written. And I'm I've been really excited about some of the people that we've been able to get on the show, including our guest this week, who is Craig Dowd. Now he's author of the book "Do Good to Lead Well." It's all about positive leadership uh, and the importance of positivity for the health of your organization. So if you are a leader in business for the health of your organization, if you're any kind of manager, but also for how you relate to your family and the importance of leading from a position of positivity uh, and how much that empowers, not only makes people feel good, which is kind of gets lost in the wishy-washiness. You know, I'm sure there's a bunch of baby boomers right now rolling their eyes like, why in my day, we didn't have to feel good. We just had to get the job done. Well, forget that for a second. It also makes your employees and your family more productive because people can get frozen by negativity uh, no matter how strong their constitution, no matter what their generation. So it's really important to remember that that it not only makes people feel good and it's not only makes yourself feel good, but it also makes everybody better at what they do. So if you want your doctor to be better, you need to be positive in your approach to your doctor. And we're going to talk about how how to deal with negative situations. Craig's going to tell you how to deal with Dr. Dowden. I shouldn't call him Craig, even though we're really close now. Uh, Dr. Dowden's going to tell you how to deal with negative situations with a positive spin. So how to, if you have a bad performance review, you have to give a bad performance review or somebody doesn't do well on the report card. How do you deal with that while still maintaining a growth mindset, while still maintaining positivity, as well as all of the benefits of positivity? This, I, I have to say, I've been interviewing a lot of people, and I know you like the keto ones, some right, of the best. Sure. I have. I thought I would love the keto ones the most, and I do. I've liked everybody that I've talked to who does, who's the science, the research scientist. My favorite conversations that I've gotten to have have been with the positive psychologists, the people, the life coaches, and the positive psychologists. So, so Dr. Dowden this week, um, Sean Acor, uh, Dacker Keltner. I have really, really liked all of those conversations. They have been some of the most meaningful, and it's the ones that I hold on to for the longest. What I also like about about these guys, I mean, is a commonality is that. Um, it's not like, because uh, if there's a positivity doesn't necessarily mean just just syrupy to the point where you just want to punch the person no, in the face. Exactly. Right. So uh, who is it? Uh, Smalley. Stuart Smalley. Stuart Smalley. Yeah. You're yeah, good enough. Not, you're smart enough, and doggone people it's like not, you. It's not that. But I have to tell you real quickly. Um, there was a guy who was the chairman of television. Okay, at Paramount Pictures, mm-hmm. Paramount Television is huge, right? So you, you're talking about. Uh, Dr. Phil's show, Entertainment Tonight, Hard Copy, Arsenio Hall, you know, all of this stuff. And he was in charge of everything. Basically and, the, the nexus for 90s entertainment. Yeah, it was. I mean, and I was just, I, I, you, you and I are both very, I, I, I've just, I've lived my life very competitive. I've had to apologize to you for being too competitive at times. But it's, um, 
I w- I, I've always, coming out of sports, I was so competitive, and I got into the entertainment tonight thing, and everybody was just so nice, and I was like, no, 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 that's not the way this works. Mm-hmm. You know, we all have, we have to, it has to be dog eat dog, you know? Yeah. And so I learned from Kerry McCluggage, the chairman of television, when I, we were negotiating my contract, and there were guys before him that were just sort of rough and mean or whatever, mm-hmm. but this guy, everybody loved him because he would always, whenever you had a meeting with him, he would always stop and think and just you could really tell he was listening mm-hmm. he, and he didn't and you know talent quote you and I are talent right so <laughs> you know uh is there it, use it's, the term just, loosely, think, yeah. just, just think of the worst actors and actresses you've ever read about right yeah that was how that's how bad I was and and this guy he was just he had a profound impact in my life because he was such a positive guy and he was he would just he, he was he was a listener and he would always find it was he, it was crazy. He would always find good stuff in any of the bad things that were happening. Yeah, uh, and and that is a that is a what a great leader. It, and it's and it's important. And how do you maintain that positivity when inevitable negative things happen? And that is that's the real trick. That's the real trick to it. Because anybody everybody's positive at Disneyland, right? You know, everybody's yeah, yeah, everybody's yeah, happy yeah. when they're at Disneyland. Yeah. So it's but he know. even fired me, and I, and I wasn't unhappy. Right. Well, I, and and so Craig's going to talk about that. What yeah. what that does when you have to let people go when you st- how, how they talk about the organization afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, I was doing the John and Lisa show, and he called me right before I was going to walk out on stage and do a concert, and he fired me, and, and I wasn't unhappy because he was just so nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we <laughs> anyway, had to go different direction. Anyway, I, was, I, I, I digress there. Hey, one quick story before we get started on this. This was a piece that, we, that Gibb and I did on the radio show, and we wanted to share it with you because I think it's, it's crazy, but it's happening. So a lot of people, well, some people, uh, not as much now, use uh, shock collars to train their dogs. Yes. Now, we actually used one for a while. For Lucy, our dog, and the reason being that we had a choice. She she was either going to get hit by a car (laughs) or we were going to give her a mild shock every now and then to to train her. And so I I believe that the shock collar saved her life. Now, not everybody believes in it, so don't send me emails. It's fine. Uh, Do what you want to do. But but, uh, anyway, now now they're making a shock collar uh, that you can buy at Amazon to shock you. Uh, to deliver a shock at certain intervals to manage bad behaviors like sleeping in. You can also give somebody the app, and they, if they see you getting ready, you know, reaching for some tequila. Um, <laughs> this is why I'm not getting this app. <laughs> I mean, it'll plug me into the wall. Uh, but but it's, it's very, it's very pop- popular. It's called the Pavlock. Yeah. Like for Pavlov's dog, of course. The Pavlock. So I've seen this. So I think uh, social media knows me well enough to have given me a lot of advertisements for the Pavlock. I have seen a lot of ads uh, for how for the sort of behavior modification stuff, maybe they can listen to me doing the podcast. Or you might you might also like yeah, a shot. Yeah, so I, oh, I the cool. Pavlock is definitely uh, <laughs> ah, ah. on my list. And look, I I think this is cl- Pavlovian conditioning or classical conditioning is a really powerful tool. Ninety percent of what we talk about on this on this show on the radio show is our hacks, brain hacks, body hacks, right, things you can do right, to yourself right. to sort of use your in, inert innate programming. Uh, in order to overcome some of the downsides to modern life. And this is a great example of one. You start having a negative physical reaction to tequila, and you'll stop drinking tequila. Right, your, body, right. your body just won't crave it anymore. Your body will learn what your, what your frontal cortex cannot, and that that's going to make you sick. Um, and, and I, so I, I support all but this. But your frontal cortex has a bad memory. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. It's like all of a sudden, you know, it's like, yeah, 
Yeah, I remember how bad I felt after the last time I had tequila. Let's try it again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but this this is a great way of uh, of undoing that. Yeah, and yeah. I also it's a reminder. It's a reminder. It's an electrical reminder. Also, if you're willing to do it to your pets, you better be willing to do it to yourself. And that and yeah, I can appreciate yeah, I can yeah. appreciate the uh, logistical synergy of it. I know a lot of people find the the electric shock collars to be inhumane, and I and I support that. But I mean, I feel like. You know, if you if if this is the side of the fence that you land on, you might as well embrace it fully and do it yourself. Let me also recommend if you want to save a couple bucks because Pavlock is not a sponsor, a rubber band. Yes, wear yeah. a rubber band around yeah. your wrist. That hurts even more than the little shot. And give yourself a little snap on the underside of your wrist if you start to engage in behavior that you're trying to avoid. Yeah, and you will start to <laughs> and you will start to stop engaging in that behavior. You're gonna walk around going, "Ow, ow!" Be like, "What's wrong with this person?" He's got, <laughs> it's the Pavlock. He's got Pavlock Tourette's. Anytime I go near an ice cream uh, store, I get a little uh, shock. Hey, one more uh, before we get to this uh, this interview, and that is that I had to. I, I wanted to get your take on this because I, this sounds crazy to me. Uh, the latest version of Monopoly is now voice activated. No, yeah. no paper money exchanges hands. It's called a uh, Monopoly voice banking. Instead of a player being the banker, it comes with an intelligent voice-activated top hat that handles all of the game's financial transactions. The voice belongs to uh, Mr. Monopoly. What do you think? I think so, <laughs> I have all kinds of issues with the game Monopoly to begin with, but my feeling is that the one benefit that Monopoly genuinely gives us is the banking thing that you do at the beginning, the counting out of the money, the managing of the physical bills, and, and the math that you have to learn in order to play Monopoly. The rest of it is kind of a rigged game. The first person to buy the most property wins every time. I had time. no idea. Yeah, the Maybe game. You tell me this the other so day. The game was originally meant to teach people that the system is rigged and and that the landed will always be in a better position than the renters. And um and instead people just liked playing it because they like they like here's the thing people like being robber barons. You get a chance to be Rockefeller and uh, and all of a sudden you're right. pretty happy right. with the system. Gotcha. So gotcha. so uh, you're taking away, in my opinion, the best part about Monopoly, the most beneficial part about Monopoly. Wow. Uh, I got gotcha. you. Sorry to be I'm, so I'm, negative. I'm not Sorry doing to be such it. a downer. I'm not, I'm not doing it. Yeah, I'll go yeah. I'll play Risk or something like that. Hey, now. Uh, hey, it's, it's time for Dr. Craig Dowden. Before we go to Dr. Craig Dowden, and coming out of this, we will go to the interview. We have our sponsor, which is uh, Weeder Artery Health. I'm holding and, it right here. And there, yeah, we have some in the in-house right now. It is, uh, it is fantastic. Your arterial health is your cardiovascular health. They are equivalent. So here is a quick commercial for Weeder Artery Health. And then we're coming out of that. Dr. Craig Dowden. Hey, it's John Tesh here to tell you about Weeder Artery Health. If you're concerned about maintaining your heart health, I urge you to check out Weeder Artery Health. It's crucial to maintain healthy and flexible arteries, and that's where Weeder Artery Health comes in. It has clinically researched key ingredients like vitamin K2, which is hard to get enough of from food alone. Weeder Artery Health uses MenaQ7 as the source of vitamin K2. It's been clinically shown to help transport calcium to your bones. Weeder Artery Health also includes an ingredient called Aronia Berry, which improves circulation and helps maintain blood pressure by keeping arteries flexible. Proper blood flow is your lifeline, and I want you to live a long and healthy life. So grab a box of Weeder Artery Health. I get mine at Costco for the best value, and you can too. Or you can visit Weeder.com. Go to Costco.com or Weeder.com for Weeder Artery Health. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Craig Dowden, thank you so much. I should say this, Dr. Craig Dowden, thank you so much for for your time today. We're really excited to be talking to you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. Looking forward to the conversation. You have 
some insane credentials. You've been called your your newest book, Do Do Good to Lead Well. It's the science and practice of positive leadership. It's been called ideal reading for people who want to make a positive impact in their organizations. Uh, you're by by top rated TED speaker Daniel Pink. Um, it's 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 supposed to be a, a tome that every top corporate executive and international leader should be reading. Uh, it's it's really impressive and it, it's been very well received. So congratulations to you on all of that. Thank you very much. So one of the big elements of your of your uh, of your book is this idea of positive leadership. So I think before we even get into any of the benefits of positivity or criticisms of it, we should define what positive leadership is. Well, uh, it's it's really around looking at what's working in our organizations versus what's broken. It's really about living our best lives and looking at what enables us to thrive. And I think in a lot of cases, and, and one of the primary reasons I wanted to write the book, Gib, was that in my coaching and speaking practice, a lot of times people will come up to me and, and really struggle with almost an existential question thinking, can I do good and do well? And can I have a positive impact? Can I mm -hmm. focus on the good things? And, uh, and really, there's a compelling case when you look at the science around when we do good, we lead well and accomplish extraordinary things. So that's a message that I wanted to share uh, within the book. And how do you define how do you define doing good? It's really around ensuring that there's benefits so that the, the net outcome is positive so that there is um, it's it's really directed towards other people and your impact on the environment. And you can define that environment broadly so that there's a positive net effect of the actions that you take. So it's not that one person loses and one person gains. It's really around win, win, win. Right. So fi finding ways so that everybody walks away feeling like they walked away with something in, in every interaction. Exactly. So as a leader of an organization, there are certain things that I want to accomplish. And then I can either bring my employees along in that journey or not. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so really being a positive leader is about how do I accomplish things that are important to me also enables the people that work for me in my organization to feel good and that accomplishes things that are critical to them. And then lastly, the stakeholders we serve, our customers and even our community at large around how they feel in interacting with us. So all of those things are aligned uh, in that positive space. Uh, okay. So, uh, I mean, that, that makes sense. But why, I guess, why, why does that matter so much? Like, why, why would positivity be the most important? Why would people walking away with a positive interaction be so important versus, say, trying to get the most net benefit uh, financially for your company or, or whatever it is in, in terms of short-term gains? A uh, fantastic question. And I think, again, it's it's natural in a lot of cases. And, and you see this in some of the large scale media uh, stories that come out and also mm -hmm. in some of the corporate decisions that are made is that, you know, there can be that focus on short term thinking. And when you look at the evidence, it's very clear that when you focus on the positive, you have net gains as an organization, as well as there's a lot of research out of positive psychology that shows when we're in a positive frame of mind. We're much more productive. We're much more engaged. We're mm -hmm. healthier. We're more innovative. So we launch our most creative thoughts when we are in a positive frame of mind. And then also we're more collaborative. And so all of those things are invaluable competitive advantages for organizations and us as individuals. So being in that positive frame of mind really helps us. And uh, to top it all off, from a physical health standpoint, we're maximally resilient and we fight off illness and take less sick days. So there are so there's myriad benefits <laughs> to yeah. being positive. And 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 how do the, how do those benefits come about? Because 
because again, like this this paradigm of of being positive all the time or or of, of wanting to of focusing on that net positive interaction. And I'm hearing you say that it's more of a it's even more emotional than it is actual uh monetary or 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 some other definition of positive, right? For sure. And and I think and what's important is and you phrased it, is that focusing on the positive. I think sometimes in this field and discipline people can get distracted or over apply the concept and say, well you can never have a focus on the negative, or you can never have uh, a discussion around some challenging issues. That's not, there's nothing further from the truth. What it is, though, is that where do you want to invest the majority of your time and energy, and how do you want to achieve the things that are most important to you? And so when you do the right things, when you focus on the positive, those financial benefits and other benefits follow. And there's a great quote, I was fortunate to interview Doug Conant, the former CEO of Campbell's, and he had this wonderful quote that really inspired his leadership approach. And he said, I'm tough on standards and I'm soft on my people. So I can you know, achieve things and really rigorously hold on to the goals that we, and objectives that we've set. And at the same time, that doesn't mean I have to be tyrannical or give me permission to do so. And in fact, to accomplish one, it requires the other. So I think that's a very, it's expanding our mindset around what that looks like. I'm sure you have, I mean, that, that's a, that's really a great quote, the idea of, of being tough on standards, but e- and easy on your people, right? Mm-hmm. Because it means if you want to, fleshing that out in my own mind, I would say that that would mean being kind to the people around you, but still holding the line on and being clear and explicit about what the standards are for certain things, right? Exactly. And, and it's so important because, again, if, if you take the argument to the extreme about, well, we only focus on the positive, then critics can understandably and rightly say, well, how do you ever have a performance-based conversation? Right. There's going to be sometimes give where right. maybe you or I are misaligned on things, and so we have to have a discussion. Now, here's where, again, that focus on the positive is so important. How do I have a constructive dialogue with you around a difficult conversation? I don't have to tear into you and tell you, you know, call you stupid or right. make a personal attack. Right, right, right. Talk about where our gap is. And so I think that again is very powerful. And it's not an either or. That's what I love too. It's an and. It's how can I make sure we're pursuing excellence and pursuing excellence in terms of how we're treating mm. each other. So mm. those those two things go together. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I so so where do those benefits really start to to, to come through? Because I, I just feel I finding that balance between being being the person that has the is the stakeholder in the company that is trying to make sure that the standards of the company are met while also making people people feel better about the interactions even when they're not performing at the standard that is required uh i would have a hard time doing that while not being disingenuous mm-hmm. well and i think that's and it raises a really great question which is okay so how can i uphold those standards and also ensure that I'm still respectful with right. the individuals who work for my organization. Right. Right. And I think that's a really, and that's an, an importantly personal question and one that you can explore and also have open conversations within your organization. And even you can say, so let's say, give you can get, and many people I work with can get animated about things. And then what they'll do is they'll say, you know what, Craig, like if I kind of pass the line where you feel where my passion around achieving excellence is really turning into, it's sounding more like a personal attack or you're feeling uncomfortable the direction in which I'm taking this conversation, mm-hmm. raise, raise your hand and let me know. And it's amazing to me, again, by just 
putting that out there, how people respond right. so positively to that because they go, you know what? Yeah, I have triggers and things that can set me off. Thanks so much, Gib, for letting me know what's important to you and some of the ways in which you may show up that I might not take positively. And then it helps me reframe the dialogue with you. And, and going back to your question, where do you start to see it? I mean, Gallup has spent decades showing that organizations that hire that have higher levels of engagement mm -hmm. uh, you know, or higher levels of positivity have higher levels of engagement, which drives profit, performance, lowers turnover. So very tangible impacts mm. on the bottom line. And so to not embrace these concepts, and I think the unfortunate thing sometimes is that it does take work. It right, takes time right. to have a difficult conversation and to engage in constructive conflict. And sometimes it's like, well, it's just easier to dismiss someone or throw them under the bus or make a cutting off offhanded remark. And so this is what can get in the way. And back to the comment you made earlier about short term thinking. And so when you invest in this, it's really for the, the long term and the results really build on themselves. Yeah. I, I, and one of the well, OK, so yes, what, what, one of the interesting corollaries, though, to the idea of positivity is positivity, and I've talked to some people about it, like um, uh, Gary John Bishop, who's on the show, who uh, who has some some colorfully languaged books, like uh, "Stop Doing That <laughs> That Stuff," but he doesn't use say stuff, and and he's great. But he and we spent a lot of time talking about positivity, and he you know talking about the limits of positivity and why how sometimes people use positivity as a crutch. And I've also yes. you know bad stuff happens. You're gonna if you're a manager, eventually you will have to fire somebody. Mm -hmm. That's just the case. So there will be negative interactions. There will be quarters where you don't meet sales targets. Like that is just a reality of, of doing anything in business or doing anything in life. There will be bad times. And the issue is if, if, if the emphasis is on positivity, one is I think people would have a tendency to ignore the negative and to not learn from the negative properly because they're trying to find the positive. That's one. And two, the idea that if something bad happens, it's because you weren't positive enough or because you weren't managing your subconscious well enough. And I also think that's dangerous. So how, I, do, you, how do you balance that? How do you, how do you, how do you work in the, the sort of the negative sides, the negative part of positivity? Sorry for the mixed metaphor there. But <laughs> while, while also maintaining that, that sort of those net benefits that, that you're talking about, all, uh, a happier workplace, more productivity and those kinds of things. For sure. And I think and I wholeheartedly agree that. And again, and, and the leading psychologists and researchers will say, well, to experience a full life, you have to experience the full range of emotions. Right. right. And, neg and negative emotions shouldn't be feared, that's, shut down and put away. That's the whole point of the movie Inside Out. That's literally <laughs> exactly. the thesis of that. And it's a great film. Yeah. And, and part of it is to say, and yeah, not to be threatened by that, which is okay. So there is a negative emotion coming up. What do I learn from that? Just in the same way, if a positive emotion comes up, what do I learn from that? So I think what's really critical is where are we focusing most of our energy? And so again, that it's not an either or. It's not like, well, it's all positive or all negative. It's that where are we gonna fit on that continuum? And then recognizing the benefits of positivity, how do I spend more of my time in that space so mm -hmm. I can leverage those benefits? And then not dismiss the things that can also very much to your point, get in the way of having positive outcomes as well. Right. And if something happens, like again, you don't hit sales targets. And then you sit down and have a discussion with an employee about, hey, here's what's going on. You mm -hmm. engage them in a conversation. And let's say they don't hit the targets again. 
And then you say, okay, well, this is just not acceptable. This is not going to work for our organization. Now we can start thinking about, are you in the right role? Is this organization the right fit for you? Right. And you can still have that in a constructive, positive way, even though the overall theme of the messaging isn't positive because we're talking about a significant performance gap and an expectation gap. And so how do you engage in those moments? And I think that's where, and also it's around maximizing the constructiveness of the dialogue. So let's, even if we're having a difficult conversation, do we have to make it torturous? How can I best make it mm. so that someone feels empowered through right. this conversation? Because we can talk about you struggling. How I so building on your point, if I attack you personally, this is really just me berating you. And then how comfortable am I gonna be to share some of the parts where I'm struggling? I may be triggered to get defensive or just to avoid it and not let you know where I'm struggling and then withdraw from the conversation. Mm -hmm. Versus if you engage with me empathetically and say, Hey, what's going on? What is there that I can do to support? What's happening? You know, what resources do you the individual may lead him or, him or herself to the conclusion that, you know what, yeah, I'm really struggling here. And there's lots of great data out of the feedback literature that, that shows that most people are aware when there's an issue, the real challenge is how are they going to discuss it and, uh, you and know, and do it. they see it as big a deal? Exactly. Yeah. And so then when you do create that space, well, now it maximizes the chances that someone will come in. So, I mean, I've worked with executives where they've let people go. And then when they leave an organization, they talk glowingly about it because they say, you know what? They treated me with dignity. Right. I didn't, you know, there was a mismatch. Uh, both of us were unhappy. And so thank you for treating me this way. And right. thank you for dealing with me uh, in that in that sense. And I, and I spoke with the CEO who closed down an entire division of their organization that had built them to where they were and basically the shifts in the in, in the marketplace led to the necessity that it had to be closed down there was nothing that could be done and so rather than to shut it down shutter the place they said hey let's engage everybody in the conversation let's ask them how they want us to pursue this it doesn't change the outcome this is closing. What we want, though, to respect everybody around the table and bring them on board is to say, what can we do to, to achieve that? Mm -hmm. And even though there was heavy resistance within the most senior level of the organization, they pursued it. And then it was extraordinary, the impact, because people thanked them at the end for bringing them on board, asking them their opinion. And then many people stayed late the last day just to ensure that everything closed up OK, because this was something they built. And again, it didn't change the toughness of the decision. Right. What it did right. was change the human. And the organization went on. And guess what those people said about the company when they left? They understood why they left. They understood what was going on. And they were they were more positive about the company in the long run, would be my guess. Exactly. And they're, yeah. and they're advocates, right? right. And, and there are people out there singing. And then for people hearing those stories, they're saying, wow, like... And you are just let go by yeah. this company. Right. And you feel that good about it. And once again, and this is so germane to what we're talking about, Gib, which is it's still a tough conversation. It's still a tough reality. We're talking about someone who worked for the organization for 20 years being told that they have to leave and there's no choice in the matter. Mm -hmm. That can sound impossible. And yet, depending on how you manage that conversation and, and that journey, it can have a profoundly different impact on the person right. in it and after it. So I, I mean, my concern was, and I, and I think you answered it well, but my concern obviously was that in emphasizing positive, 
you can ignore problems. And I, what I'm hearing you say is that the idea is to not ignore problems. The idea is to acknowledge problems, but be solution oriented. And to not only do that, but to include the individuals who are a part of the problem in the solution. For I mean, sure. in a shorthand way of saying what you're talking, what, 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 what you gave some very concrete examples of, but that, that to me is my takeaway from what, from what you just said. Is Absolutely. That, is that, fair? that is very fair. And I think, and, and there's a lot of work done that shows exactly an overextension of focusing on positivity and ignoring negative, you know, data and symptoms is highly problematic. So it doesn't give you, by focusing on the positive, it doesn't give you a license to ignore things that are challenging in your environment. Because uh, mm -hmm. that's going to be rose-colored glasses and and disconnected from right. reality. Right. So so I mean I so I guess that and 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 what I like about this mindset idea, right, of being solution oriented, the benefits of it, engaging is uh, engaging with people about the problem, even if they're part of the problem, but engaging with them on the solution, and again maintaining positivity and communication in it is that you can apply this. Obviously, like you're doing this in corporate management, but I think you could apply this to. For example, parenting. Like, I think there's some really healthy parenting stuff there, or also in your relationships. Because if you're in a if you're in a marriage and there's there's problems in every marriage, and if you're having a problem, if you can engage your spouse using this kind of uh, of mind state mindset, you can um, you can not put them on the defensive, but focus on fixing some of the underlying issues that you're having without making the other person close off and go and get defensive. Because I think we have a tendency in all of our relationships, not just professional ones, to when things are going poorly, to blame and push and be negative. Uh, in, and, and that can actually exacerbate problems. Well, and I love that you're making that connection because I think what's really critical is, as you say, like when things, when there are challenges or issues, and this is what comes up, in a lot of work that I do professionally and then it, it applies equally well personally, which is, okay, so you and I are, are having a conflict, we're having a rough time. Right. And then I, and I'm not prepared to have a conversation with you around this. And then the worst thing that happens is I treat you as if we've had the conversation. So right. I'm, judge, I'm judging you for a behavior that I have not engaged with you. Right. On. So which oh. is the ultimate to me, uh, judge and, and misstep because if I have, and to me, the two most powerful and problematic words or a phrase that we can use is I know, because I will work with people and say, okay, so you've got an issue with Gib. Have you talked to him about it? Mm -hmm. No. Okay. Why? Well, I know how he's going to uh -huh, respond. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And then I'll say, okay, how do you know? Have you approached yeah. him about this, another issue and he's blown up at you? No. Have you ever seen him blown up at someone else right. that you've observed that? No. Nope. Right. Have you heard third hand that he's ever done this? I know. Nope. And then I'm like, how do you know? And then regardless, and then you still have the individual choice, whether you want to speak with him about it. Here's what's critical, though, to to basically judge him. And based on that behavior that you haven't talked to him about, now it's doubly challenging because you haven't given them a chance to address it in any mm -hmm. way. So that's a consequence of the choice that you're making. And I think that's so, so key. And to go back to what you're saying, because it is also really important around how to have the difficult conversations. This is where you can say, again, if you and I are having conflict, I can say to you, 
hey, Gib, you know, like I, I sense there's been a lot of, I feel a lot of tension between us. Now when we're in meetings, you know, we tend to be short with each other. Uh, I'd love to be able to talk about that with you. My goal is to have as constructive a dialogue as possible. So if I say or do anything that makes you feel like I'm turning it into a personal attack or mm -hmm. please let me know. And so what do you think? So again, this is setting the stage for that conversation doesn't take away that it's going to be difficult. In fact, I can acknowledge that fact and then say, here's the ground rules. This is what I hope for. What do you think about it? Yeah. My issue comes up, though, with that is what if it is personal? I mean, what, mm -hmm. if, what, if, what if the feelings that you're describing, the negative, like, I, I, you know, we've talked, we've talked kind of at arm's length uh, from personal. We've talked about these, these examples have been professional um, and even applying it to the personal. But what if, what if you do feel attacked? What if that's the underlying issue? How do you... How do you handle something that is personal or feels personal to you uh, without ignoring it, but also under this positivity paradigm? Uh, yeah, this is so great because I think this is so let's say that we are talking about something that is personal. And then I say, you know, and then I explore that and then I say, OK, well, what is it that I'm saying or doing that makes it feel personal? Now, you'll have whatever response that you're going to have to that question. Right, right. Here's what's important for me then around my choices because now you're going to give me feedback and again unfortunately we can get kind of tripped up by this it doesn't matter whether or not i agree with your assessment of how you take it personally here's what that information enables me to do though it empowers me to make a choice so then in the future if i know i say well i like the color purple and that triggers you uh -huh. guess what's gonna that guess what's gonna happen if i keep saying that i'm gonna launch into a conflict with you because of it or it enables me to now shift my behavior to have a more positive interaction with you and i can still hold on to the fact that i believe that I like the color purple shouldn't be taken personally, yet now I choose how I want to have that, that relationship to be. And I think, again, one of the things that I find in relationships, personal or business, that people say, I can't believe I'm having this conversation with Gib again about this. Mm -hmm. And then what that suggests to me is it's going through the same cycle over and over and right. we're not learning. So by unlocking that information, now I can choose and say, okay, next time we're having this meeting, I'm going to think twice about saying, I like the color purple. And then if I do say it, then I shouldn't be shocked when Gib goes down that path because he's already told me that's going to be a trigger for him. So it yeah. really helps build our relationships in a more effective way. So that's if I'm the one causing the personal grief. But what if I'm the one that, that is personally feels... Per what, if, what if I'm the one that finds the color purple offensive? So when you say, how do I approach you about this idea in a way that, that feels personal to me, and it is a personal attack, but while also being honest and positive with you. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, and it's, it's a great kind of flip of the question. I think then we think, okay, so a couple of things, because sometimes people can have the mental calculus and say, I really don't want to have that conversation because mm -hmm. I'm afraid to have it and I feel that it's not going to be taken well. And as we've talked about, I would really be interested in exploring with the person okay so what data do you have to suggest that it won't is this your own feelings around it or do you actually have data around it mm -hmm. let's say you're going to have the conversation then i think it's important we can again preface and say you know give like i really respect you and i respect our relationship right and so i want to share something with you you know in terms of how i feel about 
some of the things that you say. And so, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure your intent is not to X. When I hear you say... Big assumption, big assumption. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and what's good is, is that that's, again, focusing on the positive. I'm mm-hmm. sure your intent... And so it's enabling someone to have an off-ramp if, if they so choose. And then mm-hmm. say, when I hear you say, I like, you know, the color purple, right. then triggers me in that in that direction Mm -hmm. and so now you know i just want you to know that so you know in in future conversations if if we can avoid that that would be fantastic and just wanted to you know get that out there now you see where the person goes with this and you can explore that and then if they say you know well what's the big deal about uh the color purple and then it's because sometimes people are like oh great well they just shut me down here then there's the counter which can be I totally appreciate for you that the color purple is not A, B, C, and D. What I wanted you to know and my purpose in sharing this with you is is it does mean something to me. This mm-hmm. is something that does have an effect. And so to keep our relationship positive and continue the conversation, you know, I would love for us to be able to, you know, for you to be mindful of, of using that. Mm. Now that seems, that's great. I mean, that, that's great if you can nip it in the bud at that early stage. I feel like there's a lot of people listening right now, and we're trying to apply this to personal relationships who maybe have a decade's worth of being told about the color purple and, yes. and, and the pain associated that go, cuts all the way down for a decade. Uh, what are some healthy ways, coping mechanisms that those people, uh, and we're so, we're being so esoteric right now with the, I like the color purple being the insult, but you know, people have, people have behavior patterns that hurt over decades of a relationship. How, yep. how do you start to approach and unravel that with all of the emotional baggage that goes with that? Yeah, and I think that's a very powerful and, and personal question. And I think, again, that's kind of – so what I would ask, again, I do a lot of coaching. My my question would be, so what are the consequences if I don't take action? Mm-hmm. So what is my life going to look like if I keep going? And so if you do have a decade or decades of this, and if you look into the future, what does that mean for you? Mm-hmm. And then so after that question, then you say, okay, so how could I have that conversation? And so sit back and think about, so what's the real core point that I want to be able to say? And maybe it's writing it down, you know, mm-hmm. writing, writing yeah. it down and saying, okay, capturing my thoughts and then coming back to it and, and rereading it a day or two later and saying, okay, so how much of this is emotionally driven? How much of this is content driven? Yeah. What assumptions am I making about the other person? So all those things can factor into it. And, and so I think, you know, sometimes we can almost, for the most strategic, important conversations of our lives, we can almost wing it and say, mm-hmm. okay, I've had enough. And today's the day I'm going to go in right, and right, right, burst right. through the door and talk to give about 10 years of the color purple. Right. And, and really you would say, okay, so if this is that important, it requires some care and attention right. and mindfulness around the approach. And then really kind of, and then asking yourself some core questions like, what do I want to say? What do I most want for this relationship? What do I most want for the other person out of this conversation? What do I most want them to get out of our relationship? And then as you start asking these really critical questions of yourself, so approaching it from yours, approaching it from theirs, and now it almost lays out a roadmap. It's not perfect. It lays out a roadmap and a guidepost. So if I'm like, you know what? I really want Gib to feel respected in this. 
Well, mm-hmm. if I go to say, I can't believe how I'm feeling you are, it's like, whoops, okay, yep, that's that's not a respectful observation to make. Mm-hmm. That is a personal attack. Mm-hmm. So it gives us some guideposts to approach the conversation and really get us thinking about what's most important to say and recognize we may be emotionally hijacked. So again, I think the other piece, if we're going to have a conversation that has been so emotionally loaded for years, then take announce that at the beginning. Hey, Gib, like... I've, this is something I, uh, I've realized and I've wanted to talk to you about for a while. Mm. I've reflected on this. And in fact, you know what? If I'm being honest with me and with you, this has bothered me for years. And I've realized I've built up a lot of emotional baggage around this. Right. So I get triggered during this conversation. And it's really important to, to have it right now. I'm likely not going to do it perfectly. And in fact, I know I'm not. And I still want to engage with you in it because our relationship is so important. And this is where I want to bring it afterwards. Mm -hmm. And it may take multiple conversations to get there. And let's start today. And you just start to, I think, acknowledging that this is going to be messy. And again, back to positive. This is not saying, hey, it's going to be super easy and let's have fun and we can, you know, have uh, go uh, go for a walk. And in 20 minutes when this is resolved, acknowledge all the muckiness that may be a part of this and then say, and I'm going to do my best to approach it in a positive way. And mm-hmm. can you help me? Can yeah, you help me do it. And I, and I like something that you said earlier on in that in that uh, I don't want to call it a diatribe, but in that answer, in that response, where where, where you talked about uh, writing it down and having that conversation in your head ahead of time, and then being able to process it and put that positive spin on it is so important. Because I think I think mindfulness meditation, and I also think mindfulness journaling is really really important. It is one of those things that I. Uh, I, I don't do it enough. I don't do it the way that I'm supposed to. But when I do do it is when I'm at my most emotionally and, and physically healthy because mm-hmm. I am finding an outlet for all of those things. And um, one of the big coping mechanisms I've used since I was a teenager is when I'm really angry about something, I write a letter uh, to that person uh, in my journal. And I don't, I, don't, I don't necessarily send it, but I say all of the most hateful, vitriolic things that I'm feeling it's not always that bad, but it be, but the the meanest stuff and the the raw emotion. And once I get it out on paper, then when I deal with that person, I can sort of okay, I I got to express that stuff. But when I deal with that person going forward, having expressed it just to myself, I now have a healthier approach, and I can start to look for those healthier ways of dealing with it with that person because I got that raw emotion out. So for me, that's that's a really helpful coping mechanism. Exactly. And and again, and they say a lot of, you know, label your emotion. This is one of the best ways to process and move through our emotions and to maximize how we manage our emotions is to label them and get them out again, not be afraid of them. And now mm-hmm. when they're there and in front of you, okay, so what is at the heart of this? Like, what right. am I really right. trying to say here? And then also it's giving credence to everything that you felt. And again, our feelings are legitimate. No matter what we're feeling, everybody has the right to feelings. Then the next stage is, okay, what does that represent? What does that mean for me? And then how are they influencing how I'm interacting with people and the world around me? And that is the critical part of it. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so that's, that's, a lot. that's a lot to chew on just right there. <laughs> Right, okay. and, I, and I think, and 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 you know what we're talking about for for people that are trying to change, we and I've said this a couple of times: decades of behavior, decades of pain. That seems really daunting, but I think biting it off in these little in these little uh, concepts. So writing stuff down, looking for that positive way to interact, and thinking about what the cost benefit analysis is of having that conversation, and what your what your desired outcome is, 
and then approaching it positively, these are all baby steps you can take in dealing with some big life hurdles. Exactly. And I think, and that's because again, sometimes it's like, oh, it's just overwhelming. Like, mm-hmm. where do I even start? It's borrowing the Nike slogan, right? Just do it. Right. And, and to start the path and to get going. And, and again, in the work that I've done, even bringing two really uh, kind of competing or, or in conflict executives together, invariably when I get them and we start having the conversation and coach them through, people will say, wow, I have way more in common with this other person than I thought. Mm-hmm. Or, wow, I had no idea that, that they were. And so just having the conversation and saying, hey, it's not not putting pressure on ourselves to to do it perfectly or, or resolve it in 20 minutes. Right. Uh, you know, just start the path, start the conversation. And if it's been 10 years or 20 years, well, this is not going to be done overnight and yeah. saying, and I'm committed to doing something differently and I value the relationship. And I think sometimes in conflict that message can get lost. It's around feeling like, well, I'm attacking you and I don't care about the relationship and it's about disrespect. And in fact, the things that drive this kind of or at the heart of this conflict is that I do care a lot about you and I hurt and I feel hurt about how the relationship has evolved Mm -hmm. to this point and then also where it's going. And I care enough about it that I want to resolve it. So then to be able to say there is something positive in that, right? Like there is something positive in caring enough to not just write someone off and to have the hard conversations. Sorry, I I didn't interrupt you there, but that that, that, that's a really good point. Like even just the willingness to engage in these things and the the willingness to try to be positive is uh, should be viewed as a net benefit to the relationship. As you you know, at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about seeking win win outcomes and that. You know, that's a great way to frame it. If you're the one being told that for 20 years you've been a jerk, the right. fact that the person cares enough to have the conversation with you should help you walk away feeling like it's a win. Correct. And, and that they also are trusting you with this almost mm-hmm. sacred information. Mm-hmm. They are coming to you and sharing the most personal of experiences and observations and saying, hey, I'm trusting that we can sort this out. And I think that's a really, again, it's so, so powerful. And that's why even approaching these conversations, it's key to say, okay, what do I want? And then to flip the switch, just like you did in your question brilliantly, which is okay. And then what do I want for the other person? Mm -hmm. So it enables us to take almost like a bird's eye view of this discussion. I'm in it and you're in it. And so how do I navigate both those things? If what I truly want is to repair and or realign the trajectory of our relationship. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've learned, first of all, well said. Secondly, one of the things I've learned in, in doing this show and interviewing a lot of people who are both productivity experts and uh, and who are um, psychologists and positivity experts and psychologists like yourself and just all of that. Um, one is I didn't think I was going to like the idea of positivity as much as I do, like this idea of the benefits of it and talking to people who focus on it. I, I find it to be way more engaging than I initially expected these topics to be for me when I started the show. Um, but then also, you know, this the the net benefit of that kind of engagement in every single relationship and how you can approach professional relationships, personal relationships, even even superficial acquaintances with that notion and the net benefits that those things can have. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think, uh, and, and it's said very well, is that, and then how that shapes the relationships that we have, right. and the types of relationships that we build, and then the experiences that come from mm-hmm. uh, from that approach right. is really, again, all-encompassing all right. and, and powerful. So, right.
Well, I don't want to get too far off of your book because we've gone we've gone left a little bit here. But uh, <laughs> so you you in your book you have the six pillars of positive leadership. I I, I don't want to I don't want to let you go without at least going over what those six pillars are. Sure. No. And uh, so the six pillars, uh, and we've touched on several of them during our conversation, is self-awareness, mm. civ- civility, humility, focusing on the positive. So a key mm-hmm. theme we've touched on, uh, creating meaning and purpose and empathy. And I think, you know, you, so it starts with self-awareness. So I really feel like, I think knowing yourself and knowing your own shortcomings is probably... Uh, I don't know. I think I, th- I don't want to say it's the most important, but to me, I think we have a we are a, at a time right now where self awareness is, is at an all time low. Yeah, and I think the the estimates are very troubling. I've seen some as low as that. You know, ten percent of us are reasonably self aware. Some yeah. of the high some of the high points are thirty percent of us. Mm-hmm. And I would agree with you, Gib, that self awareness certainly I and that's why I lead with it in the book. It is foundational um, in terms of being a positive leader. And I would even say, you know, uh, functioning effectively in the world around us. Right. Because the more that we're aware of who we are and mm-hmm. how we come across to other people. Yeah, yeah, that's is, the key, is, right? It's how we is, come across. Exactly. And that may or may not be in concert with how who we think we are. And that's irrelevant because mm-hmm. if you see me in a way that's different than who I think I am, right. now again, this sets up another Sherlock Holmesian mystery where I'm like, what is what am I saying or doing that's leading to this disconnect between who I think I am versus how give experiences me. And I think, again, that is fantastic because now I can choose to course mm-hmm. correct if I like, right. or I can keep being quote unquote who I am and then have, and know the consequences yeah. every time you and I get together. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think dissatisfaction in almost every area of our life is a, is a gap between expectation and reality, right? In your, in your personal relationships, your marriage, it's not, it's not that your spouse. It's not always that your spouse did something terrible. It's that you expected one thing and something else happened. And in your work life and your professional life, it's not always that things didn't go well. A lot of times, a lot of the conflict comes from I expected this from my employee or I expected this from my employer, and I got this instead. And that disconnect in expectation is where I believe a good amount of our conflict comes from. And I believe that you know if you can approach these, have these tough conversations we've been talking about having with a positive mindset, you can start to alleviate that gap between expectation and reality in the healthiest way possible. Well, for sure. And I think, you know, I mean, we assess our words and behaviors based on our intention mm-hmm. and other people assess our words and behaviors based on their impact. Right. And, I'm, and unfortunately, when we do or say something that is quote unquote misinterpreted, anecdotally, scientifically, what that tells us is we tend to go on the offensive and on mm-hmm. the attack and mm-hmm. like, oh, give where you are wrong versus stepping back and going, gee, hmm, what what happened here and how can I learn from it? Yeah. And you're absolutely right. It's that misalignment of expectations and then also judging people harshly for not achieving those right. ex- expectations. Uh, un- and- unverbalized expectations. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, you and I can have 
I mean, I've talked to people who, you know, they have they use the same word respect and would call themselves a respectful leader. One person says, I never say anything bad to anyone any day of the week because that would be disrespectful. Some, you know, so I have the, it's always positive all the time. Then someone else will say, well, I just if I have something to tell you, I'm going to hit you right over the head with the heaviest sledgehammer I can find because I'm respecting you mm-hmm. to achieve. And if I don't then you're going to remember this the rest of your life. And that's how I show I respect you. Yet, funnily enough, both people would say, yeah, I'm a respectful leader, a respectful person. And the experiences you have with them will be wildly different because we use the same words defined wonderfully differently. And we haven't clarified those those expectations. I, 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 I just I, I, I keep tumbling down on this idea. I, I really think that's that is foundational. This, this, and, and one of the, my least favorite things to hear from somebody, and and your your book and and what we talked about so far kind of solves this. Is well, my, that should have been obvious when I when I don't meet someone's expectations and they tell me it should have been obvious. I really, really hate hearing that because I'm like, well, it wasn't obvious to me, and whether it should have been or not is inconsequential. I didn't know that those were expectations, so how could I possibly have met them? Exactly. And then and then going around and just assuming that what's obvious to me is obvious to everyone else. Right, 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 right. It's a recipe for disaster. I mean, I've asked. So as an example, in some of the workshops I run, I'll say, okay, so if you're if you sent an email to someone, Gib, and, you know, and you say, can you get this to me as soon as possible? Uh huh. And then I'll ask the audience, I'll say, you know, how long would you wait before you get annoyed at them for not saying right. back to you? Right. And I've literally, I've had people say five minutes, five hours, and five days. Right. And now, you know, the next day, someone, to your point, they're like, well, that should have been obvious I wanted it before close of business. Right, like, right. No, no, that's not obvious at all because we haven't shared our expectations. I haven't defined this for you. Yeah, I, I somebody when people say when you have a minute, could you? It's like, well, w- <laughs> define when I have a minute because, like, I might have a minute this weekend. Is that what you mean, or do you mean like when I finish the exact email that I'm writing right now, you want me to get this done? Like, w- <laughs> w- it's it's such a vague thing, and it's and it, what I don't like about it is it takes the other person feels like they've taken the onus off themselves, right? The writer of saying uh, when you have a minute, it's like okay, yeah. and I and they have an expectation built, built into that. But yet they just put that expectations onto the receiver of that of that of that expression of either as soon as possible or when you have a minute. And and, and it happens in my personal interactions, too. It's not just a professional thing, but it, to me, it is incredibly frustrating. Exactly. And, th- and then you're left with trying to figure out, OK, so how important is this? Like, when do they need this by? And then you also don't want to let them down. And now what ends up happening is, is through the vagueness of that request. Now it almost sets you up for automatic failure because, well, you're just you're using total guesswork and it's just not, again, the likelihood of you picking right is so slim. And then the other person who who's created this messy signaling then holds you accountable for not figuring it out. Right. And you're like, okay, this is just so not helpful right now. And uh, again, back to self-awareness. What are you asking? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, so. And I think I think too this kind of seemed like a left turn, but but I, I think that our I think social media has set us up with these with these expectations, and 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 I think the internet in general. So you talked about people not being self aware. We have the Dunning Kruger effect, and for those that are not familiar, it's this idea that when you have a mild amount of knowledge about a situation, you think you understand it far better than you actually do. 
Um, and, and I think we have these, these armchair experts that are sitting on the internet and who believe that the world is a certain way without understanding the, the depth of the problem. And they're able to sort of get that information out there. And when things don't work out according to what their low level of knowledge but high level of expectations are, they get incredibly disappointed and frustrated with society as a whole. And then I think that causes, causes us to factionalize politically as a society. And I think that's why you're seeing such pushes to the far right and the far left from people because of this. I think it has to do ultimately, again, with unmet expectations and, and a little bit of that lack of self-awareness, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, and unfortunately what happens is, is that we're demonstrating less curiosity for other points of view, yeah. other perspectives, yeah. other ways of seeing things. And I think before, and, and this gets back to respect. So, and being respectful that other people can that's, have a different that's approach. Huge. That's huge. Um, and rather than, and then also rather than making it as a personal judgment, saying, okay, that's interesting. Like what makes you say that? And then, and really start to explore that and then compare it and contrast it with your own, with your own reality and your own views and beliefs. And that is again, at the heart of self-awareness. And what is fascinating again, is, is that people who are in that space, they'll constantly question their assumptions, not necessarily because they're wrong. It's just smart. So if there's new data that comes in, I'm open to it. Or, right. hey, right. that's really interesting, as opposed to just, well, it's dichotomized. Mm-hmm. I, it, I'm right and you're wrong, and that's it. End of story. Right. There's no other uh, uh, kind of exploration required. So, Dr. Down, you're saying the, the, uh, the, we can all expect a follow-up book, The Power of Negativity? from you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. As you, you reevaluate. Maybe it's an addendum. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I put it out. Yes, yeah. uh, just go in a total different direction. So uh, for sure. Well, I've, I've taken up a good amount of your time and I just, I just genuinely appreciate uh, the work that you're doing and, and everything that, you've, that we've gone over today. The book is Do Good to Lead Well, The Science and Practice of Positive Leadership. But I think we have shown uh, that these principles work for your personal relationships as well and that there is a lot that can be learned from from reading this. So I'll link to where you can buy Do Good to Lead Well in the show notes. Uh, it, Dr. Down, if people want to follow up with you, where are some good places for them to do that? Uh, they can check out my website, craigdowden.com. I'm also on Twitter, craigdowden.com. Anyone wants to connect with me on LinkedIn, same thing. And this has been a lot of fun, really enjoyed the conversation and the questions, the, the kind of deeper, really practical questions, powerful questions that are important for us to to wrestle with uh, as we move ahead. So this has just been a pleasure for me. So thanks for the invitation. Oh, shucks. That's too <laughs> Thank you so much. There's the links to the website and the social accounts in the show notes. One last thing, and I ask this to everybody I have on the show, as long as I can remember to ask it, which is what is one thing people can start doing today to make their lives a whole lot better? I would say to go to the people that you know and say, I would love to be the best friend, the best spouse, the best colleague that I possibly can. And in order to do that, you're an invaluable source of information for me. So I would love for you to give me feedback around when I'm at my best. And if there's anything that I'm doing that's not having a positive impact on you, just let me know because that's not my intention. Ugh, it sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go easy. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you. Thanks so much, Dr. Craig Dowden with Gib Gerard. Gib, I wanted to ask you because this, this is another one of my, of, of my favorite interviews. But if you could pick, if, so if people are listening, this is their first podcast, right? If, yes. If they're listening to the first podcast. 
Can you recommend your top three, the three, three that were most influential? To oh you? man, oh man. So I, I, so bucket list interview was uh, was Dominic D'Agostino. He's somebody I always wanted to talk to. So that was really great to get to talk to him. Um, su- most surprisingly good interview was Dacker Keltner uh, from the. He he has that Wellness Institute up at uh, up at Berkeley, and I did not know he sort of started me on the positivity. He, he and Sean Acor, right, right. Uh, and then finally the, there's a couple of life coaches. I know you asked for three, but I'm gonna give you a couple. Oh, sorry. There's a couple of life coaches that I've really liked: um, Gary John Bishop and Lauren Zander, and their perspective on life, their no nonsense approach has been really motivating for me. So what I can do is I'll put links to all of those episodes in the show notes, that's and awesome. you can see what my favorite that's ones great. are. That's great. Love it. As for the rest of this, that's it for our show today. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you like Intelligence for Life, the podcast, please rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to follow up with us, John Tesh, Facebook.com slash John Tesh. We're going to run out of time here, but I'm going to keep going anyway. Facebook.com slash John Tesh is where we spend the most time. We, uh, we have all kinds of conversations there. We do live videos. We post videos all the time. We try to respond to every single comment there. That is the best place to engage and to see more of what we're doing. Also, John is on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, on Instagram, at John Tesh underscore IFYL. And on Twitter, just basically at John Tesh. I am Gib Gerard, Facebook.com slash Gib Gerard, at Gib Gerard on Instagram and Twitter. And I try to respond to every single DM and comment and mention of the show that's out there. Because uh, again, this is you guys. This is a great medium for you guys to be able to control what we say and do. So I've had a couple of recommended guests from people, and uh, we've reached out and tried to get them in. And and so uh, that's a great again, a great way for you to influence what you hear on the show, and a great way to 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 learn more about what you're interested in. So so keep keep doing that, and I will keep going after it. But most of all, guys, we cannot do this without you. So thank you guys so much for listening. And please, please, or as John likes to say, we could do it without you. We just, it wouldn't be as much fun. Stop. Uh, please share this with a friend. If you like this episode, that's the number one thing you can do for us is share with a friend. Uh, and that's it. I-F-Y-L. The intelligence for your life.